You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today's message is part of our Adult Sunday School series. Adult Sunday School is taught by a variety of different men in our church. Now let's prepare our hearts as our Sunday School teacher brings forth God's truths from His Word today. All right, so this is, uh, I don't know if any of you get this uh, in Primus. It's a publication of Hillsdale College. Um, but this was a speech by Tom Cotton, a senator from Arkansas, and they adapted it. But I'm going to read it. It's seven pages. I think it'll take us about ten minutes to get through it. Hopefully you uh, don't get too bored as I read it. And uh, I know it's a little bit different than having somebody speak to you directly. But just listen. Every headstone at Arlington tells a story. These are tales of heroes, I thought, as I placed the toe of my combat boot against the white marble. I pulled a miniature American flag out of my assault pack and pushed it three inches into the ground at my heel. I stepped aside to inspect it, making sure it met the standard that we had briefed to our troops, vertical and perpendicular to the headstone. And I'm going to stop again. He wrote, a, he wrote a book just recently called Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. So this is part of where he's done his research on this. But satisfied, I moved, up to, the, moved to the next headstone to keep up with my soldiers. Having started this row, I had to complete it. One soldier per row was the rule, otherwise different boot sizes might disrupt the perfect symmetry of the headstones and flags. I planted flag after flag, as did the soldiers on the rows around me. Bending over to plant the flags brought me eye level with the lettering on those marble stones. The stories continued with each one. Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, America's Wars Marched By, Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, Korea, World War II, World War I. Some soldiers died in a very old age, others were teenagers. Crosses, stars of David, crescents and stars. Every religion, every race, every age, every region of America is represented in those fields of stone. I came upon the gravesite of a Medal of Honor recipient. I paused, came to attention, and saluted. The Medal of Honor is the nation's highest decoration for battlefield valor. By military custom, all soldiers salute Medal of Honor recipients, irrespective of their rank in life and in death. We had reminded our soldiers of this courtesy. Hundreds of grade sites would receive salutes that, that afternoon. I planted this hero's flag and kept moving. On some headstones sat a small memento, a rank or unit patch, a military coin, a seashell, sometimes just a penny or a rock. Each was a sign that someone, maybe family or friends, or perhaps a, be- a battle buddy who lived because of his friend's ultimate sacrifice had visited, honored and mourned. For those of us who had been downrange, the sight was equally comforting and jarring. A sign that we would be remembered in death, but also a reminder of just how close some of us had come to resting here ourselves. We left those mementos undisturbed. After a while, my hand began to hurt from pushing on the pointed gold tips of the flags. There had been no rain rain that week, so the ground was hard. I asked my soldiers how they were moving so fast and seemingly pain-free. They asked if I was using a bottle cap, and I said no. Several shook their heads in disbelief. Forgetting a bottle cap was apparently a mistake on par with forgetting one's rifle or night vision goggles on patrol in Iraq. Those kinds of little tricks and techniques were not briefed in the day's written orders, but rather got passed down from seasoned soldiers. These details often make the difference between mission success or failure in the Army, whether in combat or stateside. After some good-natured ribbing at my expense, a young private squared me away with a a spare cap. We finished up our last section and got word over the radio to go place flags in the columbarium, where open-air buildings contain thousands of urns. Walking down Arlington's leafy avenues, we passed Section 60, where soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan were, were laid to rest if their families chose Arlington as their eternal home. Unlike in the sections we had just completed, several visitors and mourners were present. 
Some had settled in for a while on blankets or lawn chairs. Others walked among the headstones, each from a respect, even from a respectful distance. We could see the sense of loss and grief on their faces. Once we finished in the columbarium, Mission Complete came over the radio, and we began the long walk up Arlington's Hills and back to Fort Myer. In just a few hours, we had placed a flag at every grave site in the sacred ground, more than 200,000 of them. From President John F. Kennedy to the unknown soldiers to the youngest privates from our oldest wars, every hero of Arlington had a few moments that day with a soldier who, in this simple act of remembrance, delivered a powerful message to the dead and the living alike, you are not forgotten. The Thursday before Memorial Day at Arlington National Cemetery is known as Flags Inn. The soldiers who placed the flags belonged to the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, better known as the Old Guard. My turn at Flags Inn came in 2007 when I served with the Old Guard between my tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Old Guard is literally the Old Guard, the oldest active duty infantry regiment in the Army, dating back to 1784, three years older even than our Constitution. The regiment got its nickname in 1847 from Winfield Scott, the longest serving general in American history. Scott gave the regiment the honor of leading the victory march into Mexico City, where he directed his staff to take your hats off to the old guard of the army. Perhaps Scott felt an old kinship with the 3rd Infantry because he had fought the British alongside them outside Niagara Falls during the War of 1812. Among the few regiments to participate in both of the major campaigns of the Mexican War, Monterey in 1846 and Mexico City in 1847, the old guard made history alongside American military legends. A young lieutenant later wrote that the loss of the 3rd Infantry and commissioned officers was especially severe and the brutal street-to-street -street fighting in Monterey. That lieutenant's name was Ulysses S. Grant. The 3rd Infantry was part of the main effort against the next year at the Battle of Cerro Gordo, the last stand on the road to Mexico City by Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santillana. The Mexicans had numerically superior force on the high ground on both sides of the only passable road to the capital, but Santa Ana underestimated the Americans' ingenuity and audacity. With a young captain of engineers blazing the path, the 3rd Infantry hacked through the jungle and crossed ravines to attack the Mexicans from their rear, finishing them off with a bayonet charge. That captain's name was Robert E. Lee, and to this day, the Old Guard remains the only unit in the Army authorized to march with bayonets fixed to their rifles in honor of their forerunner's bravery at Cerro Gordo. The Old Guard returned to the battlefield in the Civil War, fighting with other regulars, the career professional soldiers of the federal government, as opposed to the volunteer soldiers of the state regiments. The Old Guard fought in every major battle in the Eastern Theater, from the First Battle of Bull Run to Gettysburg, where they helped hold off Confederate charges against the weakened salient Union lines at the wheat field. Watching from the nearby Round Top Hills, a state militiaman later wrote, for two years the regulars taught us how to fight like soldiers, at the wheat field at Gettysburg, they taught us how to die like soldiers. Though out of the fight, the regiment later served in Grant's headquarters at Appomattox Courthouse as he accepted the surrender of their old pathfinder from Cerro Gordo. The old guard then went west following the American frontier and ultimately to the Philippines at the turn of the century, fighting under General John Blackjack Pershing against Muslim radicals in Jolo and Mindanao, the very places where Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have franchises today. They guarded our southern border with Mexico and Pancha Villa in the World War I, and they trained the vast army of new recruits for World War II before deploying to Europe in the final months of the war. It was after World War II that the army assigned its oldest unit to its most sacred ground, Arlington National Cemetery, whose seal calls it our nation's most sacred shrine. And with good reason, to borrow from Tocqueville in a different context, those rolling hills seem called by some secret design of providence 
to become our national cemetery. George Washington's adopted son, his wife Martha's only surviving son, bought the land that became Arlington in 1778 to be closer to his mother and his stepfather at their beloved Mount Vernon. General Washington advised him on the purchase in correspondence from his winter camp at Valley Forge. But our national triumph three years later at Yorktown shattered the family's dreams. Their son died of a fever contracted there, leaving behind a six-month-old son of his own. George and Martha raised the boy, who was named George Washington Park Custis, but was known as Wash. When Wash came of age and inherited the land, he initially christened it Mount Washington in honor of his revered adoptive father. Though he later renamed it Arlington, Wash used the land as a kind of public memorial in his lifelong mission to honor the great man. From hosting celebrations on Washington's birthday to displaying artifacts and memorabilia to building the grand mansion still visible from the Lincoln Memorial today, Arlington got its start as a shrine to the father of our country. A new resident arrived in 1831 when then-Lieutenant Robert E. Lee, himself the son of Washington's trusted cavalry commander during the Revolutionary War, married Wash's only surviving child, Mary. For 30 years, the Lees made Arlington their home and raised a family there between his military assignments. Because of his ties to Washington and his own military genius, Lee was offered command of a Union army as the Civil War started. But he declined on the spot. His longtime mentor, none other than the 3rd Infantry's old commander, Winfield Scott, now the General-in-Chief of the Army, scolded him. Lee, you have made the greatest mistake of your life, but I feared it would be so. Resigning his commission, Lee left Arlington for Richmond, never to return. The United States Army occupied Arlington on May 24, 1861, and it has held the ground ever since. Arlington at first became a military post, key terrain for the defense of the capital. The old guard even camped there for a few days in the summer of 1861. But as the horrific war ground on, casualties mounted and Washington's cemeteries filled up. Montgomery Miggs, the Quartermaster General, and Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, detested Lee as a traitor and saw a double opportunity. By turning Arlington into a Union cemetery, they gained hundreds of acres in new land for graves while also foreclosing Lee's return after the war. On May 13, 1864, Private William Christman was the first soldier interred at Arlington. Thousands more would soon join him, fixing Arlington as a new national cemetery. Or so it was thought, Lee's son inherited the family's claim to their old farm. Himself a Confederate officer, his name nevertheless reflected the nation's deep roots at Arlington, George Washington Custis Lee. Known as Custis, he petitioned Congress to no avail, then sued in federal court to evict the army as trespassers. United States versus Lee worked its way over the years to the Supreme Court, which upheld the Lee's family claim. Fortunately for the government, the nation, and the souls at rest in Arlington, Custis was magnanimous in his victory, asking only for just compensation. In 1883, he deeded the land back to the government in return for $150,000. The Secretary of War who accepted the deed was Robert Todd Lincoln, the son of Abraham Lincoln. After that final act of reconciliation between the first four sons of the great president and his famed rebel antagonist, Arlington's dead could rest in peace for eternity. Since 1948, when the Old Guard became the Army's ceremonial unit and official escort to the President, it has marched in inaugural parades, performed ceremonies at the White House and the Pentagon, and provided color guards and drill teams for events around the Capitol, among other missions. But one mission takes priority. Above all else, military honor funerals in Arlington National Cemetery. In manning and training and operating, funerals always come first, and they are a no-fail, zero-defect mission. While we often perform more than 20 funerals a day, we knew that for the fallen and the family, each funeral was a once-in-a-lifetime moment, a lifetime in the making. No matter how often we conducted funerals, and most of us performed hundreds of them, 
The pressure to achieve perfection for the fallen and their families never relented. Lieutenant Colonel Alan Kehoe, the battalion commander in charge of the Old Guard Funerals, has served in the 75th Ranger Regiment as a five-time combat veteran. Yet he told me, I've never experienced pressure like this anywhere else in the Army. He paused and added, I know that sounds crazy, perhaps to some, but not to me, and not to his soldiers. We felt the same pressure every day in Arlington, the pressure to perform our sacred duty to honor America's heroes. Nothing interferes with the Old Guard's mission in Arlington. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing, not even 9-11. On that beautiful morning, the 9 o'clock funerals were underway when American Airlines Flight 77 slammed into the Pentagon, blasting debris across Washington Boulevard into the cemetery's southeastern corridor. The, the Old Guard's medical platoon rushed to the scene, becoming the first soldiers to deploy to a battlefield in the War on Terror. Yet those funerals continued. So did the 10 o'clock funerals and the 11 o'clock funerals, over the next month, even as hundreds of Old Guard soldiers pulled guard duty at the Pentagon and carried remains from the crash site, funerals never stopped in Arlington. Last year was no different during the state funeral for President George H.W. Bush. As the nation awoke to news of his passing, the Old Guard had already assembled in pre-dawn darkness of a Saturday morning. Over the next six days, hundreds of Old Guard soldiers would honor the old aviator in Texas and at Andrews Air Force Base, the Capitol, and Washington National Cathedral. Yet far from the limelight, funerals in Arlington continued as planned. As one old guard soldier told me, our standards remain the same whether it's President Bush or a private first class. Old guard companies have industrial quality press machines in their barracks to achieve razor sharp paint creases. We measured uniform insignia out to 1 64th of an inch. Sitting down in a uniform between funerals was prohibited to avoid wrinkles. We prepare for funerals in sweltering summer heat, winter blizzards, and driving rain. Even when inclement weather shuts down the cemetery, it does not stop the old guard from performing funerals on time and to standard. Each morning, casting teams practice folding the flag, even though they have folded thousands of them. Firing parties practice their three-value salute, seven rifles cracking as one in the parking lot. In the cemetery, we talked through the key sequences and cues before each funeral, sometimes conducting the very same talk through six times in a day. Nothing was taken for granted. For rare or complex funerals, the old guard goes to even greater lengths. I participated once in a group burial for 12 soldiers killed in a helicopter crash in Iraq. We rehearsed it for several days. Last year, the Old Guard dedicated the newest 27 acres of the cemetery by laying to rest two unknown Civil War soldiers whose remains were recently discovered at the battlefield of the Second Battle of Bull Run. The soldiers involved rehearsed the mission six times. Researchers believe, incidentally, that the two soldiers may have died from wounds suffered during the Union's failed assault on the third and final day of the battle, an assault in which the Old Guard participated. Arlington is not only the site of the Old Guard's mission to honor our fallen, since the earliest days of the Iraq War, the Old Guard has performed the dignified transfer of remains at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, where our nation's fallen soldiers return home for the last time. My tour with the Old Guard coincided with the surge in Iraq, so sadly we had Dover missions almost every night, and they typically happened at night, given the flight times given and the time zone changes. Whatever the time and whatever the conditions, the Old Guard was there when the remains landed. My soldiers and I once drove to Dover two days early to get ahead of a potential blizzard. If a soldier was coming home, we would be there to honor him. Most Americans have seen the iconic photographs of flag-draped cases at Dover. Few have stood among them on that windy ramp. But Old Guard soldiers have. We've stood alone in the cargo hold, inspecting flags for slightest deficiencies. We strained with a heavy case of a fallen soldier still in full combat gear, packed in ice. We felt the lightweight cases of the dissociated remains of a soldier killed by an improvised bomb the enemy's most deadly weapon in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
We've saluted from the airplane as the remains were driven away to be prepared for the return to their family. These poignant moments at Dover, like the old guard's unflagging dedication to our fallen at Arlington, tells not only a story about our war dead and the soldiers who honor them, but also a story about the nation on whose behalf they serve. We go to great lengths to recover fallen comrades. We honor them in the most precise and exacting ceremonies. We set aside national holidays to remember and celebrate them. We do these things for them, of course, but also for us, the living. Their stories of heroism and sacrifice and of patriotism remind us of what is best in ourselves, and they teach our children what is best in America. In doing so, we assure our fighting men and women around the world that they too will be remembered in death and their families will be cared for, a mutual pledge that shaped our identity as soldiers and our willingness to fight, and if necessary, to die for our country. It is well that war is so terrible, observed Robert E. Lee as he watched his army slaughter Union troops at Fredericksburg, or we should grow too fond of it. No one understands that lesson better than the soldiers who have fought our wars on the front lines and the soldiers who have honored the sacrifices of our fallen at places like Arlington and Dover. We know that sometimes our nation must wage war to defend all that we hold dear, but we also know the terrible costs inflicted by war. No one summed up better what the old guard of Arlington means for our nation than Sergeant Major of the Army Dan Daly. He shared a story with me about taking a foreign military leader through Arlington to lay a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Sergeant Major Daly said, I was explaining what the old guard does, and he was looking out the window at all those headstones. After a long pause, still looking at the headstones, he said, Now I know why your soldiers fight so hard. You take better care of your dead than we do our living. And I hope that spoke to you. I know it spoke to me as I, as I read that, something that we should remember. Now, I hope you're still in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I know that was a long reading, but we're going to read eight more verses real quick here. 2 Timothy chapter, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead as appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, each season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of the ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto them also that love his appearing. And I hope that will be said of all of us when we stand before our Lord. You know, these soldiers that we talked about here at Arlington and all the soldiers that have fought and died for us, they all died in honor, you know, to us. They all died in honor, doing what they needed to do for our country. And it's something we shouldn't forget, especially at Memorial Day, but throughout the year. We should always be conscious of it. You know, I, things that jumped out at me at this article that I read, the consistency was impo- is important to the old guard. You know, all the soldiers that, are die, that die and are buried in Arlington get the same exceptional treatment. You know, and then they salute the Medal of Honor winners. The station of the person in his life does not affect how they are treated in death. What matters is their service to the country. You know that the same way for us in our Christian life. Our station in this life, how much money we make, how much we accomplish, how much the world knows us, how popular we ever become, that doesn't matter. What matters is our service 
to our Lord as he's the one who looks at that. So no matter if we are the ones sweeping the floors and cleaning the, the, the bathrooms, you know, that is honoring to the Lord. And that is what the Lord requires of us, is just to be willing to do our duty no matter what. Nothing is more important to the old guard than making sure their duty is performed punctually, properly, and professionally. They make sure they practice and repeat in order to make everything they do perfect. The debt that we owe to our fallen soldiers is incalculable as well. And the debt we owe to our Lord is incalculable as well. So, in here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see here that Paul is telling Timothy here at the end of this book that the time will come that they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, they will forget what sound doctrine is. Sometimes it's they know what sound doctrine is and they leave it. Sometimes it's they just forgot what sound doctrine is altogether. We can see that in different denominations and split-offs and cults. You know, they, They've forgotten what sound doctrine truly is as they've gone down this path that has been off. And they get started down that path and pretty soon they don't know the difference between what's good doctrine and what's bad doctrine because they've just said, oh, this is what we're going to do, you know. So they leave off our doctrine. Why is it so hard for us to remember those things that are so important, that are truly important? You know, we remember a lot of different odd things that we need to do, different, you know, we, we can remember what we want to order at a restaurant, you know, but can we remember the important things that we have in our life, such as our daily devotions, such as witnessing to others, such as being willing to do whatever the Lord requires of us. We have forgotten those things that are most important to God in favor of those things that are important to man a lot of the time. One of the most evident things I see today that points to this is some of the talk coming from the what I would consider the liberal side of Christianity. You know, I, I don't know if anybody's heard it, but there's talk of a great awakening, a third great awakening happening in this country. And the people that are talking about this third great awakening are the contemporary gospel preachers who, in my estimation, a lot of them have left off sound doctrine. These are the ones talking about a third great awakening. It's also the Christian rock bands who have more tattoos and piercings than a biker gang, kind of look like biker gangs, and their music doesn't really have that much about God in it, but sometimes they throw a label of Christian on it. These are the ones that are talking about a third great awakening. And that just points here to verse 3 here, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You know, I don't think we're... I would love to think that we are in the time, and I know that it can happen. It can happen in a minute that the Lord could send revival. I know that. But looking at the scope of the church in America, we see more leading to the great deception as opposed to the great awakening. And these are the people that are saying we're having this great awakening is those who have left off sound doctrine. They, they've been deceived by Satan into thinking they are doing what is right. You know, repentance and return to holy living has always been the result or what promotes a great awakening or a revival. We have to see that we are sinners. We have to be repentant for that sin and we have to be willing to live a holy life. And I don't see that as much as I should in my own life. And I know throughout the church we don't see that as much as we should in the church. Otherwise, we would see revival in the church. If we were truly repentant for our sin and desiring to live a holy life, we would see revival in our church. You know, it's not about us. It's about him who died for us. But much of the modern church, I believe, has made God into their own image and are worshiping themselves as the image of God, seeing what they want to do and saying, that is what God wants for me to do as well, 
because I am essentially my own God. And whatever I want, whatever makes me happy, that is what God's will for me is. And that's not necessarily the case. They are worshiping themselves as the image of God rather than God as revealed to us in the scriptures and the doctrines of God as revealed to us through the scriptures. Micah 6.8 says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Deuteronomy 10.12, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now this was given to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy, but I know that it applies to us today. What does the Lord require of us? It requires to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart. If we do those four things, I guarantee you we would have revival in our nation. We would have a great awakening in our nation. If us as Christians made a a focus. Just as the nation of Israel would have been successful in the promised land if they had done these four things. That's what the Lord requires of us. It doesn't extend on to that. It says this is what the Lord requires of us. To fear him. In other words, to be repentant for our sin and understand that the God is a holy God and we need to live a holy life. To walk in all his ways. Once we realize that, we should be desirous to walk in the ways that the Lord has laid out for us in his word. And then to love him. So often our love is directed toward other things and other objects to ourselves, right? And our love for our Lord is lacking. And then to serve the Lord with all thy heart and with all thy soul. So we have to be willing to, after we have those three things, to be willing to do it to serve the Lord. To go out, to step out, to be willing to work for the Lord. You know, our lack of remembering in the church is also a lack of remembering in America as well. You know, it seems in this country we have a lack of desire to remember things. With the progressive left, history, history began 13 and a half minutes ago. You know, that's when history began. Everything before that doesn't matter. Just 13 and a half minutes ago is all that matters. No historical traditional considerations can be made. Ideology, pushing forth that agenda, is all that matters in America, it seems. Especially in the mainstream media and politics. That is all you see going on. As this progressive mindset, unfortunately, has promulgated the church, we are seeing the statues torn down, the statues torn down because they supposedly promote racism. But really, it's just whitewashing history, removing that history so that you don't know. So what history is what we say it is from here on out. You know, bad things happened in the past. We need to know. We need to look and see. You know, I failed in this area. I don't want to repeat it. That's repentance, right? looking at what you've done in the past and saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to move forward into what is right. And it is important to remember those things where we have failed, not thinking about them with guilt and, you know, getting down on ourselves, but to motivate us to serve the Lord in the future. We see this repetition, though, of past evils now resurfacing, especially in the Democratic Party, where you see this rising anti-Semitism, anti-Christianity, anti-Israel, you know, the, some of the rhetoric that is taking place in the Democratic Party is equivalent to what was happening in the 1930s in Europe. This rhetoric is taking place, and you know, it doesn't take long to move from rhetoric to atrocities, okay? You start off with the rhetoric, it moves to atrocities, and we are seeing this happen in our country right now, not just in politics, but throughout our institutions. If you look at the, the institutions of higher learning, higher priced learning, essentially, that is across the board what is being taught to our kids that go to these institutions is this anti-Semitism, anti-Christianity, and it doesn't end well if not checked. It only ends in atrocities 
being committed. You know, President Trump is right to call these people out. He gets ridiculed for every time he makes his statements about these people who are making these, these allegations against Christians and, and Jews. But he's right to call them out. We should call them out as well. You know, that stuff is not acceptable to anybody who wants to live and do what's right. The only people that is acceptable to are those who are working the works of Satan. They should at least be removed from the House chambers impeached. But, you know, this lack of love for history has caused a lot of the current generations in America to forget the sacrifice that was so clearly shown to us. As we just read this article about the, the lengths they go to in Arlington as this man, Tom Cotton, relayed his experiences from when he served at Arlington. You know, the lengths that we go, we so clearly, so easily forget that, don't, don't we? We so easily forget it. You know, so I just want to think of some of the sacrifices made for our country again. I know we read that long article. You know, one of the men that, you know, made a great sacrifice for us is Dr. Joseph Warren. And I don't know if anybody here has ever heard of him, but he was a man that actually Warren, Michigan, was named after him. He was one of the leading advocates for separation from the Great Britain with the Provincial Congress. And I just cut this out of Wikipedia, but it's accurate. It's, you know, Wikipedia, sometimes you can't trust it, but... Warren was commissioned as a major general by the Provincial Congress on June 4, 1775. Several days later, in the moments before the Battle of Bunker Hill, so he's commissioned as a major general, okay? We got that. Major general, he doesn't have to do anything except for sit behind a desk and tell people what to do. By the Provincial Congress on June 14, 1775, because he was a brilliant man. He was well-versed, and he was a prominent man. You know, the people looked up to him. They respected him. Several days later, in the moments before the Battle of Bunker Hill, Warren arrived where the militia was forming and asked where the heaviest fighting would be. General Israel Putnam pointed to Breed's Hill. Warren volunteered to join the fighting as a private against the wishes of General Putnam and Colonel William Prescott, both of whom requested that he serve as their commander. So these men are said, we are going to step down so that you can lead the army because of your position. He said, no, I'm fighting with the militia. Warren declined the command in the belief that Putnam and Prescott were more experienced with war. He was among those inspiring men to hold rank against superior numbers. Warren was known to have repeatedly declared to the British, these fellows say we won't fight by heaven, I hope I shall die up to my knees in blood. He fought in the redoubt until they ran out of ammunition. So they ran out of ammunition. And they tried to pull him off the lines. And he said, no, I'm staying here. He, he stayed in the lines until the militia could escape. No ammunition. No one they're going to be slaughtered. You know, stayed there. And uh, he, he was killed instantly by a musket ball in the head by a British officer, possibly Lieutenant Lord Rawdon, who recognized him. And this account is supported by a 2011 forensic analysis of his body. His body was stripped of clothing and he was bayoneted until unrecognizable and then shoved into a shallow ditch. You know, this man was influential to the beginning of our country, to our separation from Great Britain. He was a doctor, a prominent man, a brilliant man, one who had left four children behind, you know, not afraid to give his all for his country. You know, all the sacrifice that takes place in the wars for our, for our freedom is horrific. You know, some wars we remember better than others, I think. You know, I think of the Civil War, we remember the Civil War. It's something we can look back to. Maybe because it, you know, we don't have the, the graphic images per se. You know, we have the, the still shots. That you can see the black and whites. It's hard to really pick out the horrors of war, so maybe we look at it a little bit less. Like it, we glorify it maybe a little bit more, probably more than we should. But the level of war, horror that the Civil War brought upon our nation, I don't I think we ever really fully grasp. I just think of the Battle of Antietam. You know, if I look at a, a battle in Gettysburg, you know, all of the battles were bad, especially the, the farther the war went on, the more expert they became in the art of killing. You know, the better weapons were produced and all that. But Antietam, 
you just wonder, why did that have to happen like that? Why did it have to go down? You know, there was 8,500 people that died in Miller's 30-acre cornfield. I mean, I, it, it, 30 acres is not that big of an area to have 8,500 people killed in that area. In, in uh, 20 minutes in the West Woods at Antietam, 2,200 men died in 20 minutes of fighting. 20 minutes of fighting. In Bloody Lane, there was 5,000 casualties in four hours. It amounted to a river of blood in that road that was a sunken road, a river of blood of people fighting for our freedom, not willing to sacrifice. You know, then I think of some of the wars that maybe we've forgotten, such as the Korean War. I believe that's a war that we've really forgotten, all the sacrifice that was put into it. And maybe we look back on it like, you know, it should never have been fought. And that, that is neither here nor there when we remember that the sacrifice that these men were willing to put on the line. The Battle of Chosin Reservoir in Korea, where the Chinese Red China got heavily involved, we experienced 17,833 casualties in 17 days of fighting through the harshest weather conditions ever. I mean, those guys were fighting on the mountains. Their bodies would freeze when they, you know, they would be carrying their bodies. They would fall to the ground dead and be frozen in a matter of minutes. They couldn't even pick them up to carry them with them. Not that they could. They were in a constant state of retreat. You know, the, the, the things our men and our women as well have gone through in war for us, we need to remember, especially this weekend. You know, when we think of the politicized war, such as Vietnam, and even Afghanistan and Iraq, and any war we fight from here on out, I believe, in our current political state, we, it will always be politicized. There's, you know, we really need a drastic change in our country in order for it to not be. We need to remember them, and we need to honor their sacrifice, and remember the horrific cost of our freedom. But why do we have been given so much sacrifice of our own selves, so little, for not just America, but also for the church, for our faith? We love our comforts. We love the normality and the consistency of our lives. We look for ways to avoid engaging in conflict for what is right. When, we are, when are we going to sacrifice, as previous generations have, not necessarily in giving our life, all that may be required, but in giving of ourselves, right? That's all these men did. They didn't give their lives particularly. They gave of themselves. They gave all of themselves to the fight. When are we going to give all to our Lord, give all for our country, as past has done? And one last time, I'm going to read that, that article, the first paragraph of American Crisis Number 1 from Thomas Paine. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of men and women. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be a strange indeed if so celestial an article of freedom should not be highly rated. This is the times that we face, and we will be facing, that are going to try the souls of American Christians. Those who are not dedicated to seeing both the church and America succeed will fall back when faced with this conflict. If we're not dedicated to seeing the Lord's kingdom promoted, to seeing right being done, to seeing America return to a, a place of blessing again, to have revival, we're going to, re we're going to fall back when faced with this con conflict. Hell is not easily conquered unless we are willing to engage it. The same goes for tyranny. Freedom is easily lost when tyranny rises, and we are seeing that happen right now. We know who is on our side, right? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. How do we rate our faith? How high do we rate our freedoms? Does it come above or below how high we rate our own comfort and pleasure? I need to do more. I need to do more. I'm sure we all do. As we remember those who have sacrificed so much for us, especially 
the Lord Jesus. He sacrificed his all for us, made that way possible that we could come spend eternity with him to be forgiven of our sins. We must determine that we will sacrifice and endure this hardness as well. Let's pray. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram where you can see what's happening happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.